Well, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas even here at St Andrews, isn't it? It even smells like Christmas. This beautiful real tree here is, um, is giving us the most beautiful fragrance. Guys, we will probably have time for questions after the sermon today. So if you'd like to text your question, there's a number on the inside back page of your news and then Stu will read it out for you at the end of the sermon. Well, I thought I'd start by sharing with you my latest obsession. Along with over about half a million other Australians, I've been hooked on season three of The Crown. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a Netflix TV show based on the British royal family. Uh, A mix between fact and fiction, I'm sure. And the latest episode I watched featured Prince Charles's investiture in 1969. Though he'd been made Prince of Wales in 58, he'd waited until 1969 for that official ceremony. And that was 50 years ago. Prince Charles is the oldest and longest-serving British heir apparent. And if he becomes monarch, he'll be the oldest person to do so. I wonder what it's been like to live a life of such prolonged expectation. He's been waiting and anticipating his role of king for a very long time. Well, our story today is set in a time not of a king in waiting, but a people waiting for their king. God's people had been promised a king, one who would establish God's good and just rule forever. But the royal line had effectively been crushed in 586 BC. And so they'd been waiting for God to fulfill his promises, not for a lifetime, but for generations. And after centuries of longing to hear God's word, God breaks the silence with this angelic announcement that the Virgin Mary will conceive a son and he'll be named Jesus. He'll be the son of God. God's promised Messiah. And we are invited to reflect on all this means through the lens of Elizabeth and Mary as they enjoy the blessings from God in the form of their unborn babies. And that's where we're heading tonight. But quickly, going back to last week, you might remember that we were introduced to Luke's Gospel, a biography of the historical Jesus. And we read in Luke's first four verses that this orderly account was written so that Theophilus, And indeed, the rest of us reading his gospel could know with certainty about the things we've been taught. Last week, we were taken right back to the beginning, to the conception of John the Baptist, who was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And these two stories in chapter one do that for us, don't they? They make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In Zechariah, Elizabeth and Mary, we we see three devout people with a long-held hope in God to save his people. And they start to grow in excitement and anticipation that God is finally on the move. And we're invited into that story through their eyes that we might feel that same sense of heightened expectation. So let's dive into the passage now. Well, our story today is familiar, isn't it? The angelic messenger Gabriel appears in Nazareth and announces to the Virgin Mary, who's engaged to Joseph, that she will conceive a son, and he will be called Jesus. Now, she would have been around 15, maybe even as young as 13, which is a normal age for engagement back then, 
but very difficult for us to imagine today. But for us it's important because though Mary and Joseph were engaged, which was legally binding, they wouldn't have lived together and their union wouldn't have been consummated. So that means that the miraculous conception of Jesus to Mary included the lineage of Joseph, who was a descendant of David, but Mary remained a virgin. Now I realise that for some, this very supernatural occurrence described here in a very historical narrative is difficult to accept. But tonight, I'm going to speak about God himself initiating his entrance into the world as a baby coming on mission to save his people and establishing his eternal kingdom. If you believe in a God who's able to be both eternal and transcendent and in the world as a person, then it's reasonable to accept that God could work this way. But I do acknowledge it's a pretty unusual proposition and I'm going to come back to it more later. But the first thing we notice in this familiar story about Mary is actually the prominent mention of Elizabeth. In verse 26, it connects all that we're about to see unfold for Mary with the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who's now in her sixth month of pregnancy. In fact, if you cast your mind back to the narrative last week, we can't help but recognise so many similarities between these two stories. And this direct mention of Elizabeth at verse 26, leaves us no doubt that the parallels are no accident. Here are some similarities, though there are more. The same heavenly messenger appears in both stories. That's the angel Gabriel. Both Mary and Zechariah are troubled or startled when the angel appears and speaks, but they're both reassured with that phrase, do not be afraid. They're both foretold of a miraculous conception and they're even given the names of their sons. And the Holy Spirit is integral in both accounts. So there are connections in the form and the content of these stories, but there's also a relational link because we read in verse 36 that Elizabeth is a relative of Mary's. And our story today ends with Mary visiting Elizabeth. No doubt they spent time together in the early stages of Mary's pregnancy and the later stages of Elizabeth's. And the narrative in Luke continues to alternate between John and Jesus, bringing us to that moment where John baptises Jesus and his public ministry begins. So it's clear to us that these stories are interwoven. And so as we view these stories together, what can we learn? Well, after centuries of silence... God speaks and God moves. There had been 400 long years with no new prophets, no activity of God's Holy Spirit. But now, God's Spirit is active and speaks through Gabriel. Mary, and indeed Zechariah and Elizabeth, represent for us a faithful people of God who'd been waiting and hoping for the day when God would be active again. As the pressure and oppression of God's people under Rome had mounted, so too had their longings that their God, who'd promised to save his people and give them a king, would start to make his move. And together, these conception stories signal the breaking in of that messianic age. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament era, the last time God spoke to his people, left them with this prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. 
The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, said the Lord Almighty. Other versions of this verse start with, Behold, or look, something remarkable is about to happen, it's saying. There will be one who prepares the way, and then the Lord himself will come. And they'd waited for centuries, which is incredible faith, isn't it? And now look, it's happening. So it's good for us to notice all these parallels between these events because they signal in the breaking in of God, his movement once more among his people. And yet, they're not equal events, are they? So I'm going to call this section same, same, but different. There are clear parallels, but John's important mission will be surpassed by God's saving work through Jesus, and it plays out this way. John will be great in the sight of the Lord, but Jesus will be great without qualification. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, but Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth and Zechariah, though old, will conceive the usual way. And Mary, who's a virgin, will conceive simply as a result of the power and the presence of God. John will turn many back to God. And Jesus will reign over the kingdom. Now this is great news. It's not a dig at John. Because every Jew knew that the Messiah could not come until the preparer had come. And so this is a great sign that God is moving to fulfill his promises. We are invited to behold, to look at these two two stories together as a signal that it's happening. God is once again speaking and active and we can feel the growing anticipation that the Lord himself is on the way. And then the angel Gabriel gives us cause to be even more confident about this possibility as he describes the baby to Mary. Gabriel makes some pretty significant claims about this baby Jesus, but he does does so on very good authority. I am Gabriel, he says back in 119. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now, it's true that these words are to Zechariah, but he speaks to Mary with the same divine insight and the same authority, and he makes five really significant claims about Jesus. I'm going to focus here on verse 32 and 33. The first one is, he says of Jesus, this baby, he'll be great, as opposed to a humanity that's corrupt and defiled and broken and lost. Jesus will be great. It's not so much his his title, but his very being. And number two, he'll be called the son of the most high. This is repeated as son of God in verse 35, and they mean the same thing. The son of God is a divine human involved in a complete union of action and love with the father. He'll be given the throne of David. Jesus' rule as the promised Messiah is clearly in view here. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, He will be the promised king of Israel. And number five, his kingdom will never end. Jesus is the beginning of the eternal rule of the Davidic king, established in his first coming and consummated in his second. And these descriptions of Jesus here, of his nature and his position as the son of God, are a fulfillment of all that's been promised in the scriptures. 
We had read to us just before 2 Samuel 7, and in this Old Testament passage, through the words of the prophet Nathan, God promises David to make his name great. He promises a successor who will sit on the throne. He will establish his reign and his rule over God's kingdom, and he'll reign forever. And this king? Of him he says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. All of these aspects of the promised, foretold king, the Messiah, are assigned now to the baby who the Virgin Mary will conceive, and he'll be called Jesus. It was the great hope that God's people had been waiting for, and now it seems it's him. So if the expectations were heightened before, they should be swelling with great hopeful anticipation now. Well, last night was our Carols on Clamville night. I heard it was amazing. I had a look at Mal's 360 photos on Facebook. I felt like I was there. I was at a dance concert instead. I'll let you guess who was dancing. And one of the songs that they sang was one of my favourite. It's called Oh Holy Night. I think we're singing it at Lessons and Carols too. I love that song. It gets me every time. And I've been thinking a lot about this line. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Aren't we in a weary world? I started off tonight thinking about the world during Mary's time, God's people living under the firm hand of Rome, longing for God to save them. But don't people even today long for a solution to the brokenness of our world? The drought, the storm, the fire, the greed, the poverty, the consumerism, the slavery. The world is weary. And not just that, but there is a swelling, a a growing anticipation of the final day approaching. Just this week, I ran into a friend of mine, a lady I know from book club, and we were chatting in the coffee shop. And she and I were chatting about Tuesday, that day of horrible smoke haze. I know it's been a month of horrible smoke haze, but Tuesday was especially bad. And she was saying that on that day from the 26th floor of her office, she had no visibility out her window at all. And all she could hear was the fire engine sirens as they were responding repeatedly over and over to all of the buildings whose smoke alarms were going off because of the smoke. So as she looked out at that red-tinged, stinging smoke haze and listening to the sirens, she described the day as Armageddon. And then on Wednesday, following the climate change protests in Sydney, Gretel Colleen in her news report was asked to comment about the mood in Sydney at the moment, and she said this. As Sydney-siders watch these horrific conditions in their state, their main feeling is that of hopelessness. People are scared, she said. Our world is longing for hope in the face of its brokenness. And as their sense of the end time is awakened, so is their swelling need for relief. For Christians, the answer to these longings is found in Jesus. Our growing anticipation during this Advent season is a reminder to us, a time of recapturing our thrill of hope our weary world. And because the prospect of his coming 
breaks a new glorious morn. There is much to rejoice in. And Luke writes to us so that we can be certain of this hope in Jesus. He said so at the start of his gospel. And by looking back at these first signs of his coming, Luke is giving us great confidence that the one in whom we place our hope is indeed God's saviour. But he also writes with a sense of anticipation for Jesus' return. And we've been given great grounds to be assured of this future hope and the full restoration to come. But for others who don't know this incredible new era that breaks into a broken world with Jesus' birth, there is much for them to rejoice in too. There is an answer to their longings. God has moved in history and he's spoken and it's happening and it's him. And yet perhaps totally understandably, there is one detail that Mary is concerned about. I'm sure she's thrilled at the prospect of the Messiah coming, but she does have a question. Verse 34, she says, Well, how will this be, since I am still a virgin? It's pretty reasonable, isn't it? And the conception of Luke, uh, the conception of Jesus to a virgin named Mary is very important to Luke. In verse 27, he repeats it twice. Now, this isn't just a case of one-upmanship on Elizabeth, which I implied earlier. The virgin conception, the virgin birth, is significant in that it demonstrates the conception of Jesus solely as the work of God. This is a story about the sovereign act of God and his salvation aims. God's power, God's presence, through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, will result in the conception and the birth of God's Son. There isn't any human hand at play here. Mary does nothing. Joseph does nothing. And even though throughout the passage, Mary's called favoured, 28 and 30, and then blessed in 45, this is not a story about human achievement or human acceptability or even Mary's own personal piety. The conception and the birth of Jesus to a virgin emphasises the sovereign choice and the initiation of God himself to enter the world. She's humble, and she's young, and she's obedient, yes. And she's called blessed in the sense that she's been graced by God to be the mother of a divine son, that's true. But this isn't a story about Mary, it's a story about God. And he orchestrates his arrival in the world, into history, as a baby. You see, this isn't just another king, descended from David, this is the Lord whose coming we're being prepared for. And the word Lord in connection to Jesus is important for us. It's the word Yahweh, the Hebrew word reserved usually only for God. And it's the word Elizabeth uses for Jesus. We're going to hear that later. Jesus is God himself on the way. And so that Mary can be sure Gabriel tells her about her cousin, Elizabeth, who is old and unable to conceive and yet is six months pregnant. Mary will be able to see this with her own eyes and she'll be able to see that all God has announced will indeed take place. Now it's easy to get stuck on the mechanics and even the possibility of a virgin conception. It is pretty weird. But instead, I invite you to see clearly the loving free will act of God to come from heaven to earth on his own accord 
being faithful to his promises. There's nothing they did to entice him down and there's nothing you do now to earn his favour. It's just the loving act of a father to break into a broken world in a very unique way. And verse 37 is a powerful wrap-up for us for this point. It says, For no word from God will ever fail. He may have been silent for a while, but he had promised this would happen. And he's faithful and he's on the move. And it's this stunning possibility that causes Mary to respond simply in verse 38. I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And Mary surrenders in willing service to him. It's a humble and faithful response of a very young girl. And with it, the scene ends and she leaves to be with Elizabeth. And we're going to focus now from verse 39. So Mary rushes to be with Elizabeth and as she's welcomed into the home, she can see with her own eyes Elizabeth's pregnancy. Upon Mary's greeting, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. Not just the usual movement of an unborn baby, it's John the Baptist recognising and responding to the baby growing in Mary's womb. John is the one who'll baptise Jesus later in chapter 3 and he's announcing to Elizabeth and Mary now that this baby who'll be called Jesus is actually their Lord. Elizabeth's been filled with the Holy Spirit, giving her the gift of faith to recognise this even at this early stage. And she says in verse 43, Why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And it's the term Lord, the same word for Yahweh that we talked about before. Jesus is being referred to here as God. Now these two women are invited to see with great assurance that God's plan for blessing is still on track. It's totally real. And their growing baby bumps attest to that. But it's also fully divine. And they've been given a glimpse of this incredible truth. They've even been included in God's plan And Elizabeth calls Mary blessed. And so here they stand together. It's a great picture, isn't it? One far too old to be pregnant and one so young and still unwed. But they've been given confirmation that God has fulfilled his word to them. And as their bumps and their babies grow and they feel each each movement, they can see the day coming closer when these promised ones will be born. Now, in a very simple way, this scene serves Luke's purpose, giving Mary and Elizabeth confirmation that all God has said would be fulfilled. And Luke wrote to give us certainty about Jesus too. But there's more than that going on here. Not only have they been given each other for reassurance, but these cousins, with pregnancies that would have been very difficult to explain, have found solace in one another. There's a mood of comfort, of shared joy, as they share in each other's anticipation. It's an intimate and personal scene, a moment of very excited waiting. Now, I can relate to this feeling. When I was pregnant with William, I had been prepared for his arrival before his due date because my two others were early, which, of course, meant that he was late. So I waited for a whole month the two weeks leading up to his due date and the two very, very long weeks that he was overdue, waiting until he came. 
And with each day, I woke up wondering if he would come that day, growing in excitement and anticipation that he was about to arrive. I stopped going out, not just because it was too uncomfortable to do so, but to avoid those questions. Oh, the baby hasn't come yet. No. But those quiet days of waiting were very, very special. In so many ways, I already knew this baby, his patterns of movement and his heartbeat. And in that quiet knowing, a very real love was already growing. And they were great days of excited waiting. Now, whether this is a direct familiar experience for you or not, in the story of Mary and Elizabeth, you have been invited into that room to share their joyful anticipation and to know the quiet knowing that they had, that it's happening and it's him and it's God and it's true. And you're invited into personal reflection on all that that means. This event in history that in this moment perhaps only two or three of them even know about is an event that changes history. The revelation starts small, but it's not lacking in magnitude. But it's intimate and it's personal. Jesus, who's the hope of all humanity for all of time, who came to save a broken world, arrives in great humility. And he's as real as a little baby in the womb of a teenage woman. This is the stunning invitation of the Christian faith, isn't it? The sovereign God of the universe, creator of all things, inviting us to know him personally. And so we join in great expectation today that Jesus is the Jesus, both human and Lord. I pray that you enjoy these last few days in the lead up to Christmas, all the last minute bits of preparation that you have to do. And I pray that you have days of waiting with great hope for all that's about to take place. Amen. Okay, so we have a couple of questions that have come in here, Ness. Uh, the first asks, should we make a bigger deal of Mary like some other church traditions do? <laughs> Look, I think that um, it's great to make a big deal of Mary in that um, I think it's pretty significant the way that we have insight into who Jesus is, just even at this early stage, um, from a woman. And the fact that she is told this early who Jesus is, you know, in the rest of the Gospels, it takes others a really long time to discover the identity of Jesus. And God directly reveals this to her. And I think that's pretty special. Uh, But do we make a big deal of Mary in that she can dispense blessing especially? I think that uh, God dispenses blessing to us and he's blessed Mary to be the mother of a divine son. But I think it's a story about God. Thank you. Another question here. Um, As we ponder large questions, it seems, on the phone tonight. Why doesn't God send angels to us today Hmm. to make his plans clear to us? And even to those who don't believe. Mm. There would be some who would say God does send angels today. And um, I think it's absolutely possible that he does. Uh, There are times I would love a direct message from God. I've certainly asked for them. I haven't seen an angel yet. Uh, I think he does. I think he has. 
Yeah. Thank you. Perhaps it's for those who have eyes to see. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Ness, it looks like we've got one final question here that asks, how can we enhance our waiting for God's advent? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about, especially this Christmas. Um, I was sharing this with our Tuesday Women's Bible Study group uh, just last week as we were wrapping up for the year. I have, um, I'm new to the prayer book. I'm new to the collects. And don't tell anyone. And I have really specifically loved uh, the prayer uh, for Advent. And I don't know it off by heart. Others in the room may. They could shout it out if they really wanted to. But it's really helped me see uh, the special waiting for Christmas in two ways. That we anticipate again the coming of Jesus in great humility. And that gives us lots to celebrate our secure hope. Uh, But we still wait, don't we? Because the world hasn't been fully restored under his lordship. My life has, but the world hasn't been fully restored under his lordship yet. And I think there's much to still long for. And so I think this Christmas, as I enjoy and celebrate his first coming, I still feel a sense of great waiting for his second.